Chapter Eleven of the Moon Maid by Edgar Rice Burroughs. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Thomas Copeland. Chapter Eleven: A Meeting with Kota. The pursuers were not yet in sight, but I knew from the nearness of the sound of approaching footsteps that it would be impossible to complete the splicing of the spears, to find a secure place for the hook above, and for me to scramble upward to the rim of the crater and haul Mogo after me before they should be upon us. Our position looked almost hopeless. I could think of no avenue of escape, and yet I tried, and as I stood there with bent head, my eyes cast upon the floor of the tunnel, they fell upon the neatly coiled rope, lying at my feet, one end of which was fastened securely about my waist. Instantly there flashed into my mind a mad inspiration. I glanced up at the overhanging rim above me. Could I do it? There was a chance. The lesser gravity of the moon placed the thing within the realm of possibility, and yet by all earthly standards it was impossible. I did not wait. I could not wait. For, had I given the matter any thought, I doubt that I would have had the nerve to attempt it. Behind me lay a cavern opening into the depths of space, into which I should be dashed if my mad plan failed. But, what of it? Better death than slavery. I stooped low, then, and concentrating every faculty upon absolute coordination of mind and muscles, I leaped straight upward with all the strength of my legs, and in that instant, during which my life hung in the balance, of what did I think? Of home? Of earth? Of the friends of my childhood? No. Of a pale and lovely face with great dark eyes and a perfect forehead, surmounted by a wealth of raven hair. It was the image of Naila, the moon maid, that I would have carried with me into eternity had I died that instant. But I did not die. My leap carried me above the rim of the crater, where I lunged forward and fell sprawling, my arms and upper body upon the surface of the ground. Instantly I turned about, and lying upon my belly seized the rope in both hands. Quick, Mogo! I cried to my companion below. Make the rope fast about you. Keep hold of the spears, and I will drag you up. Pull away, he answered me instantly. I have no time to make the rope fast about me. They are almost upon me. Pull away, and be quick about it. I did as he bade, and a moment later his hands grasped the rim of the crater, and with my assistance he gained the top, dragging the spears after him. For a moment he stood there in silence, looking at me with a most peculiar expression upon his face. Then he shook his head. I do not understand yet, he said, how you did it, but it was very wonderful. I scarcely expected to accomplish it in safety myself, I replied, but anything is better than slavery. From below us came the voices of the Kalkars in angry altercation. Mogo picked up a fragment of rock and leaning over the edge of the crater threw it down among them. I got one, he said, turning to me with a laugh. It tumbled off into nothing. They hate that. They believe that there is no reincarnation for those who fall into a crater. Do you think that they will try to follow us? I asked. No, he said. They will be afraid to use their hook poles here for a long time, lest we should be in the neighborhood and shove them off into the crater. I will drop another rock down, if any of them are in sight, and then we will go upon our way. I do not fear them here in the hills, anyway. There is always plenty of broken stone upon the level places, and we of lathe are trained to use it most effectively. A 
almost as far as I can go I can score a hit. The cog-cars had withdrawn into the tunnel, so Mogo lost his opportunity to dispatch another, and presently turned away from the crater and set out into the mountains, I following close behind. I can assure you that I felt much better now that I was armed with a spear and a knife, and as we walked I practiced casting stones, at Mogo's suggestion and under his instruction, until I became rather proficient in the art. I shall not weary you with the narration of our journey to Lathe, how long it took i do not know it may have consumed a day a week a month for time seemed quite a meaningless term in vana but at length after clambering laboriously from the bottom of a steep gorge we stood upon the edge of a rolling plateau and at some little distance beheld what at first appeared to be a cone-shaped mountain rising fully a mile into the air above the surface of the plateau there cried mogo is late the crater where lies the entrance to the tunnel leading to the city is beyond it. As we approached the city, the base of which we must skirt in order to reach the crater beyond, I was able to obtain a better idea of the dimensions and methods of construction of this great interior lunar city, the base of which was roughly circular and about six miles in diameter, ranging from a few hundred to a thousand feet above the level of the plateau. The base of the city appeared to be the outer wall of an ancient extinct volcano, the entire summit of which had been blown off during some terrific eruption of a bygone age. Upon this base the ancient Lathians had commenced the construction of their city, the houses of which rose one upon another, as did those of the Kolkar city, from which we had just escaped. The great age of Lathe was attested by the tremendous height to which these superimposed buildings had arisen the loftiest wall of lathe now rising fully a mile above the floor of the plateau narrow terraces encircled the periphery of the towering city and as we approached more closely i saw doors and windows opening upon the terraces and figures moving to and fro the whole resembling closely an enormous hive of bees when we had reached a point near the base of the city i saw that we had been discovered for directly above us there were people at various points who were unquestionably looking down at us and commenting upon us. They have seen us from above, I said to Mogo. Why don't you hail them? They take us for call-cars, he replied. It is easier for us to enter the city by way of the tunnel, where I shall have no difficulty in establishing my identity. If they think we are call-cars, I said, will they not attack us? No, he replied, call-cars often pass lathe. If they do not try to enter the city, we do not molest them. Your people fear them, then? I asked. It practically amounts to that, he replied. They greatly outnumber us, perhaps a thousand to one. And, as they are without justice, mercy, or honor, we try not to antagonize them unnecessarily. We came at length to the mouth of the crater, and here Mogo looped his rope about the base of a small tree growing close to the rim and slipped down to the opening of the tunnel directly beneath. I followed his example, and when I was beside him, Mogo pulled the rope in, coiled it about his waist, and we set off along the passageway leading toward Lathe. After my long series of adventures with unfriendly people in Vana, I had somewhat the sensation of one returning home after a long absence, for Mogo had assured me that the people of Lathe would receive me well, and that I should be treated as a friend. He even assured me that he would procure for me a good berth in the service of Kota. 
my greatest regret now was for Naila, and that she was not my companion instead of Mogo. I was quite sure that she was lost, for had she escaped, falling back into the crater outside the Kalkar city, I doubted that she could successfully have found a way to lave. My heart had been heavy since we had been separated, and I had come to realize that the friendship of this little moon maid had meant a great deal more to me than I had thought. I could scarcely think of her now without a lump coming into my throat, for it seemed cruel indeed that one so young and lovely should have met so untimely an end. The distance between the crater and the city of Lathe is not great, and presently we came directly out upon the lower terrace within the city. This terrace is at the very rim of the crater around which Lathe is built, and here we ran directly into the arms of a force of about fifty warriors. Mogo emerged from the tunnel with his spear grasped in both hands high above his head, the point toward the rear, and I likewise, since he had cautioned me to do so. So surprised were the warriors to see any creatures emerge from this tunnel, which had been so long disused, that we were likely to have been slain before they realized that we had come before them with a the signal of peace. The guard that is maintained at the inner opening of the tunnel is considered by the Lathians as more or less of an honorary assignment, the duties of which are performed perfunctorily. "'What do you hear, Kalkars?' exclaimed the commander of the guard. "'We are not Kalkars,' replied my companion. "'I am Mogo, the Paladar, and this be my friend. Can it be that you, Kovo the Commodar, do not know me?' "'Ah!' cried the commander of the guard. It is indeed Mogo the Paladar. You have been given up as lost. I was lost indeed, had it not been for this my friend, replied Mogo, nodding his head in my direction. I was captured by the Kalkars and incarcerated in city number 337. You escaped from a Kalkar city? exclaimed Kovo, in evident incredulity. That is impossible. It has never been accomplished. But we did accomplish it, replied Mogo, thanks to my friend here. And then he narrated briefly to Kovo the details of our escape. It scarce seems possible, commented the Lathian, when Mogo had completed his narrative. And what may be the name of your friend Mogo? And from what country did you say he came? He calls himself Julenfit, replied Mogo, for that was as near as he could come to the pronunciation of my name. And so it was that as Julan Fit I was known to the Lathians as long as I remained among them. They thought that Fifth, which they pronounced Fit, was a title similar to one of those which always followed the name of its possessor in Lathe, as Sagroth the Gemadar, or Emperor, Kovo the Kamadar, a title which corresponds closely to that of the English Duke, and Mogo the Paladar, or Count. And so to humor them I told them that it meant the same as their Javadar, or Prince. I was thereafter called sometimes Julan Fit and sometimes Julan Javadar, as the spirit moved him who addressed me. At Mogo's suggestion, Kovo the Kamadar detailed a number of his men to accompany us to Mogo's dwelling, lest we have difficulty in passing through the city in our Kalkar garb. As we had stood talking with Kovo, my eyes had been taking in the interior sights of this lunar city. The crater about which lay this built appeared to be between three and four miles in width, the buildings facing it and rising terrace upon terrace to a height of a mile at least.
priest, were much more elaborate of architecture and far richer in carving than those of the Kalkar city number 337. The terraces were broad and well cultivated, and as we ascended toward Mogo's dwelling, I saw that much pains had been taken to elaborately landscape many of them, there being pools and rivulets and waterfalls in numerous places. As in the Kalkar city, there were gagas fattening for food in little groups upon various terraces. They were sleek and fat and appeared contented, and I learned later that they were perfectly satisfied with their lot, having no more conception of the purpose for which they were bred, or the fate that awaited them, than have the beef cattle of earth. The Yugas of Lathe have induced this mental state in their Vagas herds by a process of careful selection covering a period of ages, possibly, during which time they have conscientiously selected for breeding purposes the most stupid and unimaginative members of their herds. At Mogo's dwelling, we were warmly greeted by the members of his family, his father, mother, and two sisters, all of whom, like the other Lathians I had seen, were of striking appearance. The men were straight and handsome, the women physically perfect and of great beauty. I could see in the affectionate greetings which they exchanged an indication of a family life and ties similar to those which are most common upon earth, while their gracious and hospitable reception of me marked them as people of highly refined sensibilities. First of all, they must hear Mogo's story, and then, after having congratulated us and praised us, they set about preparing baths and fresh apparel for us, in which they were assisted by a corps of servants, descendants, I was told, of the faithful servitors who had remained loyal to the noble classes and accompanied them in their exile. We rested for a short time after our baths, and then Mogo announced that he must go before Kota, to whom it was necessary that he report, and that he would take me with him. I was apparelled now in raiment befitting my supposed rank, and carried the weapons of a Lathian gentleman, a short lance, or javelin, a dagger, and a sword. But with my relatively darker skin and my blonde hair, I could never hope to be often an object of remark in any Lathian company. Owing to the color of my hair, some of them thought that I was a Kalkar, but upon this score my complexion set them right. Kota's dwelling was indeed princely, stretching along a broad terrace for fully a quarter of a mile, with its two stories and its numerous towers and minarets. The entire face of the building was elaborately and beautifully carved, the decorations in their entirety recording pictographically the salient features of the lives of Kota's ancestors. Armed nobles stood on either side of the massive entranceway, and long before we reached this lunar prince I realized that possibly he was more difficult to approach than one of earthly origin. But at last we were ushered into his presence, and Mogo, with the utmost deference, presented me to Koto the Javadar. Having assumed a princely title and princely raiment, I chose to assume princely prerogatives as well, believing that my position among the Lathians would be better assured, and all my interests furthered, if they thought me of royal blood, and so I acknowledged my introduction to Kota as though we were equals, and that he was being presented to me upon the same footing that I was being presented to him. I found him, like all his fellows, a handsome man, but with a slightly sinister expression which I did not like. 
possibly i was prejudiced against him from what naila had told me but be that as it may i conceived a dislike and distrust for him the moment that i laid eyes upon him and i think too that he must have sensed my attitude for though he was outwardly gracious and courteous i believe that kota the javadar never liked me it is true that he insisted upon allotting me quarters within his palace and that he gave me service high among his followers but i was at that time a novelty among them and kota was not alone among the royalty who would have been glad to have entertained me and showered favours upon me precisely as do earthmen when a titled stranger or famous man from another land comes to their country although i did not care for him i was not loath to accept his hospitality since i felt that because of my friendship for naila i owed all my loyalty to sagroth the jemadar and if by placing myself in the camp of the enemy i might serve the father of naila i was justified in so doing i found myself in a rather peculiar position in the palace of kota since i was supposed to know little or nothing of internal condition in lathe and yet had learned from both naila and mogo a great deal concerning the intrigues and politics of this inner city for example i was not supposed to know of the existence of naila not even did mogo know that i had heard of her and so until her name was mentioned i could ask no questions concerning her though i was anxious indeed to discover if by any miracle of chance she had returned in safety to lathe or if aught had been learned concerning her fate kota held me in conversation for a considerable period of time asking many questions concerning earth and my voyage from that planet to the moon i knew that he was sceptical and yet he was a man of such intelligence as to realize that there must be something in the universe beyond his understanding or his knowledge his eyes told him that i was not a native of vana and his ears must have corroborated the testimony of his eyes for try as i would i never was able to master the vanahan language so that i could pass for a native at the close of our interview kota announced that mogo would also remain in quarters in the palace suggesting that if it was agreeable to me my companion should share my apartments with me nothing would give me greater pleasure kota the javadar i said than to have my good friend mogo the paladar always with me excellent exclaimed kota you must both be fatigued go therefore to your apartments and rest presently i will repair to the palace of the jemadar with my court and you will be notified in sufficient time to prepare yourselves to accompany me the audience was at an end and we were led by nobles of kota's palace to our apartments which lay upon the second floor in pleasant rooms overlooking the terraces down to the brink of the great yawning crater below until i threw myself upon the soft mattress that served as a bed for me i had not realized how physically exhausted i had been scarcely had i permitted myself to relax in the luxurious ease which precedes sleep ere i was plunged into profound slumber which must have endured for a considerable time since when i awoke i was completely refreshed mogo was already up and in the bath a marble affair fed by a continuous supply of icy water which originated among the ice-clad peaks of the higher mountains behind lathe the bather had no soap but used rough fibre gloves with which he rubbed the surface of his skin until it glowed these baths rather took one's breath away but amply repaid for the shock 
by the sensation of exhilaration and well-being which resulted from them. In addition to private baths in each dwelling, each terrace supported a public bath, in which men, women, and children disported themselves, recalling to my mind the ancient Roman baths which earthly history records. The baths of the Jemadar, which I was later to see in the palace of Sakroth, were marvels of beauty and luxury. Here, when the emperor entertains, his guests amuse themselves by swimming and diving, which, from what I have been able to judge, are the national sports of the Lathians. The Kalkars care less for the water, while the Vagas only enter it through necessity. I followed Mogo in the bath, in which my first sensation was that I was freezing to death. While we were dressing, a messenger from Kota summoned us to his presence, with instructions that we were to be prepared to accompany him to the palace of Sagra, the Jemadar. End of chapter 11. Recording by Thomas Copeland.